This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then Jesus told his disciples, If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay everyone for what they have done. And I tell you the truth, that there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. And so, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that we would hear not just the words of men, but the words of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to take that this morning as my text from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 977. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and beginning at verse 21. And so Jesus says in our text, amongst other things, apparently that suffering is not an option. That suffering is not an option. Indeed, suffering wasn't an option for Jesus. In fact, in verse 21, he says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And so suffering wasn't an option for Jesus, and neither apparently is suffering an option for us if we would be followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says in verse 24, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, say no to himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now this is very vivid language, by the way. When we mention the cross, we don't think of what they thought when Jesus first said this. Uh, we think of the cross, we see an, a nice one. This is a one-off, by the way. We had somebody do this, and there's only one like it. And, and, or we think of the cross and the, as a piece of jewelry hanging around our neck. In Jesus' day, it was the most horrid form of execution known to man. In fact, it was created, uh, invented by the Persians, and then the Romans got a hold of it, and they perfected it. And the point was to nail someone to the cross and leave them up there for days if they had the strength to endure and die a slow, torturous death. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so apparently suffering is not an option, which perhaps uh, may sound a bit of a downer, and which also may be the reason why some take make light of the suffering uh, 
if they don't skip it altogether, notwithstanding the fact that suffering is a major theme in the Scriptures, and especially in the New Testament, from beginning to end. In fact, Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 16 and verse 33, said to the disciples, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, I've overcome the world. Or in Acts chapter 14, beginning of verse 21, and Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, said, And when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel in Derbe, that's present in present-day Turkey, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1 and 29, Paul himself is writing from prison. He's suffering. And he wrote to the believers at Philippi, and now it is now modern-day Greece. And he said, For it has been granted to you as believers for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Or Peter. And his first letter to the community of believers to which he was writing wrote, 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 6, And in this you rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, suffering, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more, being more precious than gold that perishes, Though it's tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From suffering to praise and glory and honor. Which reminds me of something that Paul Bunyan wrote in his famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. The bitter must come before the sweet, and that will make the sweet all the sweeter. James 1, beginning at verse 2, in fact, Holy Cross men, that was, this was our text yesterday morning. James chapter 1, and beginning at verse 2, an extraordinary expression. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, spiritually lacking nothing. Which reminds me of something that Robert Llewellyn wrote in his book entitled A Doorway to Silence. He said, our choice as Christians is not whether we suffer or whether we don't. We will. Rather, our choice is whether when given suffering it shall be creative or destructive. And so seemingly suffering is not an option. Indeed, as we already noted, suffering was not an option for Jesus. Indeed, as Matthew says in our text, beginning at verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on a cross and on the third day be raised. And so suffering was not an option. He must go, Jesus says. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And that... As Jesus would later say in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, without the cross, there is no ransom. There is no salvation. 
or any of the things that we enjoy as a free gift given to us because of what he did for us on the cross. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 12, something of a parallel passage to what we're reading, at least perhaps a different occasion, but saying the same thing. John chapter 12 and beginning at verse 23, Jesus says, For the hour has come, which is interesting because all through John he's saying, My hour has not come. My hour has not come. And now in chapter 12 he says, My hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And now is my soul troubled, Jesus says. And what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour? But it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. And so suffering was not an option for Jesus. And notice that Jesus would suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and then the third day rise. Indeed, isn't it interesting? Jesus dies at the hands of the leaders of the religious establishment. How interesting. Well, religious people would never do that to the Messiah, come to them to give them all these blessings. But they did. In fact, in John's Gospel, it says he came to his own and his own received him not. Not much of a reception, a trial, scourging, crucifixion. But their control over Jesus would be short-lived, as Jesus said, and on the third day I'll rise again. And still Peter wasn't happy with what Jesus was saying. Indeed, Matthew says in verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside. Literally, he took him to his, himself. He, he, he grabbed him and took him aside. And he rebuked him. That's, I mean, that's the key word. Like, what's the tone? What, what did it sound like when Peter said what he said? Oh, Lord, may it never be. No, he rebuked him. He said, may it, God forbid, this will never happen to you. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? <laughs> that Peter assumes the role of the teacher and Jesus becomes his disciple. Taking Jesus aside and rebuking him, res res instructing him on what Jesus will do and what he will not do, according to Peter's will. It should be noted that uh, Peter isn't merely concerned about what's going to happen to Jesus. And perhaps actually the, the, the strongest idea in, in Peter's mind is what's going to happen to him and the other disciples. If he cares anything about them, he certainly cares about himself. That if, if, if what would happen if what Jesus is describing actually happens. Indeed, none of the disciples wanted Jesus to go to, to Jerusalem and to suffer and to die. They wanted him to go to Jerusalem to become king. And with them beside him on their, on their thrones, ruling with him. And so this is why Peter asserts himself and, as if he was some sort of ultimate authority about what Jesus will do or not do. This reminded me of something a professor of mine while I was at Dallas, or excuse me, Neshota House actually, the Episcopal Seminary in Wisconsin, Dr. Ralph McMichael, which he wrote um, in an article that was published in the Living Church. He said, quote, we must be wary of our temptation to make Jesus a subject in our kingdom. 
We must be wary of, uh, of the temptation to make Jesus a subject in our kingdom, which it would seem is the mistake that Peter is making here. But as Matthew describes it, Peter's attempt to hijack Jesus' authority is short-lived. As Matthew says, verse 23, but Jesus turned to Peter. He had some harsh words back to say. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Jesus says some rather extraordinary things to Peter and about Peter. Indeed, he calls Peter Satan. Because ultimately, Peter, in this instance, is speaking on Satan's behalf. Indeed, the last person who wants Jesus to go to Jerusalem and die as a ransom for many is Satan. He doesn't want people to be saved. He wants, to be, he wants people to be destroyed. And if he's not doing it actively, he's very happy to have us do it to ourselves. And so Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me literally means, uh, is another way of saying, get out of my way. And we can do that, you know. Stand in God's way. Hindering God's mission in the world. Rather than helping it. And so Jesus calls Peter a, a, a hindrance, a, a stumbling block, something in the way, a hindrance. Peter isn't helping with God's plan, he's hindering it. And Jesus says this is so because Peter isn't thinking God's thoughts. Peter's thinking man's thoughts, Jesus says. And interestingly enough, to think man's thoughts apart from God is to think as Satan thinks. Which ought to give us pause. Because this is true whether we are aware of it or not. Peter wasn't aware of it. I expect Peter thought he was so right. This can't possibly. In fact, this is so wrong that I need to stop God come in human flesh and be a hindrance to what God wants to get done. And that's how it usually goes. And so suffering was not an option for Jesus and nothing could keep him from it. And nothing did. But then suffering isn't an option for us either if we would be followers of Jesus according to Jesus. As Matthew says, verse 24, And then Jesus told his disciples, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Well, there's a lot of crosses. You know, this idea, Ooh, I'm just so glad that, that Jesus bore the cross so I don't have to. Well, anybody who would say that hasn't read the New Testament. And is not familiar with the teaching of Jesus. He says this more than once. On various occasions. If anyone would come after me. That is be a follower of mine. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. To, not, to deny oneself. Uh, to put it in a, perhaps a, 
a more simple way, means to, to, to give up your own way. So it's not your kingdom that you're running and you bring in Jesus behind you and you lead the band from the front and ask every once in a while, Jesus, how you doing back there? <laughs> glad, you're in the, glad you're in the band. Nobody plays the saxophone like you, Jesus. No, that's not it at all. In fact, they used to say in, in, in Jesus' day, they used to talk about the disciple-rabbi relationship, the disciple-teacher relationship. And if a, if a disciple was truly faithful, they would say that that disciple is covered in the dust of his rabbi. Because he follows so close and as the rabbi walks down the dusty roads in Palestine, the dust comes up back off of his heels and is all over the disciple who, who's clinging and walking and being like the rabbi. And to deny oneself is to give up your own way. In this context, it's, it's our calling if we would be disciples of Jesus to give up our own way and to take Jesus' way and make it our own. His way becomes my way. <laughs> this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Galatians. He said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He's living his life through me. And when you see me, and I'm following him, you see him. Because I've given up my own way. And he's the shot caller. And I obey. And I'm covered in the dust of my rabbi. Indeed, to deny self, as we have it here, is to engage in an act of total surrender to the will of Christ. Who are you? <laughs> I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Then I'm a rector and a father and a husband and a, a citizen and all the rest. But all of that is affected by the one thing that I am at my center or you at your center and that is I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And when I'm no longer a rector, I'll still be a follower of Jesus Christ. And should I lose my wife and I'm no longer a husband, I'm still a follower of Jesus Christ. And on and on. And so to deny oneself is to engage in an act of total surrender to the will of Christ. That is total surrender in every aspect of my life. And even to the point of suffering and death, should it be required. Even death on a cross. Which is exactly what Jesus is calling us to. Even as he did so himself. He's not saying, hey, you know what? You cover it. He doesn't say that. He's not the general that stands behind enemy lines and says, you go get them. I'm too important. To die. I'm too important to be captured. No, he says, follow me because I'm headed to Jerusalem and I will suffer and I will die and the third day I will rise again. And so we read in Philippians chapter 2, Paul 
in prison writing to the believers in Philippi, and he says this. Jesus is not just Savior. He's the paradigm. He's the template. He doesn't just give us things. He shows us the way. And to be a Christian is to follow him and be like him. And to know the freedom and the joy that comes with that. Because all the, the things that, all the idols that keep you up at night are all stripped away. And you have one thing that can be never taken from you. And that is his love and his salvation and his gifts and his reward. And so we read Philippians 2 beginning at verse 5. Have this mind in you. Think this way, this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in, in human form. He humbled himself. Key characteristic of the disciple, and you can't be one without it. Self-emptying, the willingness to be a servant, humility of mind, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he did that, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It makes me think of Max Licato's famous saying, whether you live to be nine or ninety, life is short and the kingdom of God lasts forever. We, when we talk about surrendering and the costs involved and so forth, it won't be, it, there's a baby crying. Ask the mother, ask the mother of that child about how terrible uh, the contractions were and the pain she went through to bring that child into the world. She'll tell you, you know what, I don't quite remember. Of course you don't remember. And when we're in the kingdom and he's saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant, there won't be any practical working memory of the things it cost us to be true to him. It'll be in the past. Hardly worth mentioning. Peterson, in the message, he renders Jesus' words in verse 24 in this way. Jesus saying, anyone who intends to come to me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering, Jesus says. Embrace it. And follow me. And I'll show you how. And then in verse 25, Jesus moves from this issuing a call to follow him to, to the issuing of a warning. And then making a rational argument. Like, you know, well, listen, I mean, you... you Maybe you're not thinking about this, but this all makes sense. I'm not asking you to do something that doesn't make any sense or that there isn't a reward for it or that you won't be benefited both in this life and the life to come. 
I'm calling you to something that you see it at the, at, at the beginning or at, at, at first flush and you think, no, like sometimes other things can be. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, go on. And the benefits and the blessings that follow, you can hardly imagine what they will be. But he says in verse 25, for whoever will save his life will lose it. That is to say that those who try to protect themselves by ignoring Christ's call won't be protecting themselves at all. They may be protecting themselves from following through on this, but the end of it won't be quite what you think. Or as Peterson puts it in the message, self-help is no help at all. And Jesus continues in verse 25, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This reminds me of Paul's words to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 11 and verse 18. He says, if the Spirit, he's talking to Christian believers, living in a very difficult world, by the way, and it was a very difficult world up until the end of the fourth century when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. That was a major shift when everybody in the Roman Empire became a Christian because they were members of the Roman Empire. Like Kierkegaard said, when everybody's a Christian, nobody's a Christian. But up until that point, Christianity was illegal, and then it was tolerated in some places, And so if you were a Christian, suffering was a part of your life for 300 years. That'll purify the church because nobody does it just to be nominal, just to please your friends. You're trying, you're hoping that the the wrong friends don't find out because it could cost you your life. But Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Paul writing to the Romans said, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead If the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead, that spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies. He's talking about the resurrection. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. And that, by the way, that, that event is the seminal point of Christianity and the birth of the church. The spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In verse 18, and I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I cannot lose. And neither can you. Should you choose to surrender it all to him? And Jesus continues in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's interesting. And the scriptures say you bring nothing into this world. You take nothing out. But we focus the whole of our life on the thing we didn't bring in. And the thing we can't take out. The thing we are most sure to lose. But the soul. Well... You know, I hope it works out. Doesn't sound like much of a plan. 
Maybe we should shift it and turn it around and say the soul is what is important and the things I didn't bring in and the things I don't take out should be secondary. I think that's what Jesus is saying. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And Jesus continues in verse 26. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now that's a very interesting statement. First off, souls are not for sale. And secondly, on the day of judgment, when everything is stripped away, even if a soul could be purchased, no one will have, any, have anything to purchase it with. You will stand naked before God, just you and your character, and who you really are. And so Jesus continues. Verse 27, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I think this is sort of interesting. He will reward them according to what, what they have done, not what they have. You know why? Because they won't have anything. John Burke, in his book, So Revolution, he wrote this, to experience true life, the life perhaps we don't even know we really desire, to experience true life, the life we desire, we must be willing to lose the life we think we want. But fear of losing that life keeps most of us from ever finding true life. So I wonder, where does that leave you? Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And perhaps you've never really ever committed the whole of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're a Christian, quote unquote, you go to church, whatever. Religious people, it was religious people who killed Jesus. Lots of religions and lots of religious people. But what Jesus is talking about is something different. And perhaps you've never made that commitment. You've never followed through on this. Jesus is a, a part of your life. He's a, a piece of furniture on the periphery while you pursue what's most important to you. But perhaps today you're ready. And if you are, and if you do, I guarantee you'll never regret doing it. I guarantee you'll never regret doing it. And that even if Suffering is not an option. Amen? Amen. Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning that, that this will be a turning point. Not just another Sunday, but will be the day that you and your spirit touch them and they said, I'm not going to go down that road anymore. I'm not going to walk, even as a religious person, on the broad road that leads to destruction, the road that many find, but rather the narrow road, albeit sometimes a road of suffering. But you're there on that road, Jesus. And so when we suffer, we don't suffer alone. We suffer in fellowship with you. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.